Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. You're listening to a recording from The Vaults, a pre-show talk given by James Conlon, LA Opera's Richard Seaver music director and conductor of Candide. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming. Happy New Year. This is still January, so I wish you a wonderful Happy New Year full of beautiful music and beautiful opera, and I hope we're going to see you a lot in 2018. There's not only this spring, but of course there's next fall as well. We've announced our season. Uh, I hope you've taken a good look at it, and I think there's a lot of great things. Uh, Candide is a celebration. Uh, this is the 100th anniversary of the birth of Leonard Bernstein. I don't think I have to tell any of you who he was and what he means, but we're going to be talking a lot about him uh, today. Uh, having grown up in New York City uh, in the great Bernstein years, the, uh, or at least part of them, the 60s, he was, of course, he was Mr. Music in New York and as well as the world. And so I had uh, a heavy and beautiful dose of watching him and actually, of course, and eventually uh, meeting him and getting to know him. Um, as usual, I call, call your attention to a, a long and boring article that you can read in your leisure about Candide, which I wrote. It is about Leonard Bernstein, Voltaire, and uh, Candide, what you're going to see tonight. Uh, Leonard Bernstein, uh, you, you can see, if you go on YouTube, you can watch Leonard Bernstein conduct Candide, it's there. You can watch Leonard Bernstein on two occasions talk about Candide before he conducts the overture, and you can get that in two different, uh, two different eras, one in the 60s, I think one in the, in the 80s. Uh, so there's a lot to enjoy um, about this wonderful piece of music, which um, uh, I'm thrilled to be able to conduct. I must tell you, it's an opera I never expected that I would conduct this opera. And I have had a ball for the last few weeks, rehearsing it uh, day in and day out. Um, it's more fun than a barrel of monkeys. And I think you will, you will agree with me tonight. Um, and the big question that everybody uh, in operatic world says, well, what is it? Now, Leonard Bernstein, in one of those introductions, says um, it's an operetta or a musical or whatever you want to call it. Now, how that came to be, that's what we're, we're going dis to discuss a little bit about that, what it is or what it represents. Uh, does it represent something? Because people like categories. Uh, lo we love to talk about categories. And, you know, an opera house is a very broad thing. Uh, there are, you can come here and get music of all sorts, you know, let me just give you a little, uh, a little example um, brought, uh, on my iPod here. So you can come here and hear, for instance, a Mozart opera, and I chose to play The Marriage of Figaro for you because that, of course, is, is a play that was written more or less at the same time that Candide by Voltaire was written, which is the late 18th century. So you hear something like this. Yeah, that's Mozart, that's Figaro. Here's, here's another Figaro opera, which we've seen in recent years, The Barber's Seville. Same French author, Beaumarchais, a uh, contemporary of, of Voltaire, whom we're going to be talking about. If your tastes go elsewhere. So here we are at the end of a five-hour struggle. Siegfried, triumphant ending, worth, worth the entire trip. So that's a different one. That's a, that's a music drama. 
theoretically, is that an opera? Wagner would have said, no, it's a music drama. What would Mozart have said about the Marriage of Fury? He would have said it was an opera buffa. It was a funny opera. Uh, so would Rossini. And if those heavenly heights uh, aren't interesting to you, here's something. You can stay in the German language and hear an operetta, Die Fledermaus. Strauss is a classic example. So here, people sing and they also speak. Uh, nobody speaks in Wagner operas, nobody speaks in Mozart or Rossini's, they sing all night, but there are uh, operettas or opera comique, we talked about that a little bit early in the season with Carmen, so you can speak and you can sing at the same time, or uh, alternatively. Now, that is the uh, progenitor of musical comedy. Operetta in Europe becomes musical comedy in, in America. Uh, here's another, here now, if you like your... Do you like Italian melodrama? This is Don Carlo, to which you are all invited at the beginning of next season. That's what that sounds like. Or if you like um, what's so-called bel canto, more beautiful singing, here's Joan Sutherland singing Lucia di Lama more. Now you see what an incredible vari variety of things there are in, in an opera house. There's French sort of operetta, slash Offenbach, the tales of Hoffman. This is where we're going to watch for our the grandparents, the great-grandparents of Candide. Here's another one. Here's an important man. Court Vile. Now we are on Broadway, and we're in the 1940s, and Court Vile is going to be a big influence on Bernstein because even though he's gonna write music that's very popular, delicious to listen to, easy to digest, as he sugarcoats all the music, he often has very, very serious social messages coming through. And Bernstein is gonna do the same thing with Candide. Here's, an, here's another lot. This is a real musical of the 50s. My Fair Lady. Hear the musical language, pretty far away from Siegfried, wouldn't you say? Now, Bernstein is going to try to, his goal in life was to write the great American opera, and what was the great American opera going to be? It was going to be something that took this incredible large uh, uh, inherited culture from classical music from Europe, and he's going to try to marry it with American, an, an American idiom, or he's going to create that idiom, and that's, um, that's what he's in the process of doing Candide. Candide was premiered in 1956, December of 1956. It is incredible that in December of 1957, Bernstein premiered West Side Story, which in fact uh, became the great work and perhaps the great American opera. He never thought so, he was never satisfied, he never really accomplished in his own eyes what he set out to accomplish, but with West Side Story, he certainly did. Uh, those of you who know and love West Side Story, anybody here like West, West Side Story? Yeah, everybody, yeah. So you're going to see and hear some things that are very similar. But just as striking is how different this work is, Candide, from West Side Story. And it is amazing that they were basically, somehow or other, all going through his mind at the same, at the same time. So here is a little bit of luck and West Side Story.
So we've established that the Opera House is a great place. Uh, not just because I love it and I work here, it is a great place. Everybody can come here and you can, that, there's that incredible variety of musical theater, which is what opera is, uh, that is, that is uh, available, can live in an opera house and can be shared between you, the audience, and we, the performers. So, uh, so what are we going to call, what are we really going to call Candide? You know, Candide, uh, uh, first of all, let us go back uh, and say something about its origins. So, in 1759, that's before the American Revolution, that's before the French Revolution, um, the French writer, philosopher, critic, satirist, uh, who called himself Voltaire, uh, writes a story, a long story, about a young man whose name suggests that he's very innocent and very wide-eyed. And so his name is Candide, obviously coming from Candid. Um, Candide, uh, as you will learn, has been tutored by a particular uh, uh, mentor of philosophy who's called Dr. Uh, Pangloss, Pangloss meaning many languages, who is um, going to be uh, basically harpooned by Voltaire because of his belief in what? Optimism. Optimism is everything has, there's a reason for everything and it is all meant to be. So if it is, it is right. And so we are living in the best of all possible worlds. Uh, sounds great, uh, but Voltaire thought that was a lot of nonsense. So he writes this entire long story. He's basically harpooning, harpooning the philosopher Leibniz, who, had, uh, who was uh, sort of the, the champion of that viewpoint. So Dr. Pangloss is a stand-in for Leibniz. Um, the, uh, this particular production, you will see Voltaire talk to you, tell the story, but at the same time, he will also play Dr. Pangloss. So in a way, he's playing, uh, he's playing both sides and some of the wit is uh, involved in that. So um, one of the problems that, that uh, emerged with Candide was that it was not considered a success on Broadway. Uh, produced in 1956, it had 73 performances and then closed. Now that was considered a flop. Bernstein was sorry, but he considered it a flop. Others considered it a flop. Now, I want to tell you that if any opera today were written and it had 73 performances in the entire world, it would be considered a stunning success. But the measure is different. Everything is relative. And on Broadway, which was, of course, a commercial uh, enterprise, 73 performances was not enough to make back the money, to get it back, and to make it. So it was a flop. Bernstein was not only were just aware of that, he was very conscious that he wanted to fix that. So he revises it, and it gets several versions. There's another one in 1956. There's another one in 1973. There is a so-called final word, um, where, which you can hear on, C, uh, on CD, or you can see it on YouTube, 1989, just a year before he died, which is his last public performance of that work, uh, but it was even revised after his death by um, some close to him who uh, said, yeah, well, he really wanted to do this, and so he, that's been integrated. So if you go to another performance of Candide next week, next month, next year, you may very well hear some different music in a different order. You are very likely to hear a different text because uh, in some of these cases, Bernstein kept exactly the same music 
but the text was changed. So uh, there is no such thing as a, as a definitive version of Candide. Tonight we have brought a production called The Glimmer Glass version. It was staged by Francesca Zambello. Um, it's an excellent production and captures it all, but it's only one viewpoint. So there can be many, many other viewpoints. Now, the uh, original, the people who wrote the book at the beginning were pretty impressive. Uh, there's um, uh, Richard Wilborn, there was Lillian Hellman. Uh, these are high class, Dorothy Parker. I mean, that's amazing collaborators. And yet, uh, it seemed that it needed some help. So, Stephen Sondheim, who of course was to make his own mark as a composer and a writer, but was the man who wrote the book to West Side Story, um, had the following to say. Why was Candide a flop? The book didn't belong with the score, the score didn't belong with the direction, and the direction didn't belong with the book. Then it goes on to say, I thought Lillian, that's Lillian Hellman's book, was wonderful, but it's very black. The score is a pastiche with bubble and sparkle and sweetness. The direction was wedding cake, like an operetta. So Stephen Sondheim is going to contribute to, to the next revision. And, but that pastiche, that's a good word, because yes, it is a pastiche. It's a pastiche of styles. Um, Bernstein's critics, those who love him, all agree it's eclectic. If you like eclecticism, then you're going to be fine. If you don't, you won't. Um, uh, it, it was very much in his personality, and this story, um, this story was a very good, a good uh, starting point for that kind of eclecticism. Why? Because it's the story that of a of a young man, uh, Candide, who's going to travel around the world of his time, and so it gave us all sorts of opportunities for all sorts of different types of music. And this, of course, is playing to Bernstein's strength as a man who wrote the book, The Infinite Variety of Music, if any of you will remember that. And that infinite variety of music, well, he was an infinitely varied composer. He could write in many, many different styles. And he had um, no compunction about mixing them all in the same work. So it's an eclectic work. The word pastiche is well chosen for that. Um, you're, going to find, uh, you're going to find everything from uh, classical gavats. You're going to hear the New England chorale, which um, I'll mention shortly. Uh, uh, you're going to hear Mahler in the background. Uh, you're going to hear love music from Broadway. You're going to hear Mahler Leader. You're going to hear Mahler Symphony. Um, you're going to remember operetta from, uh, from, from the French. Offenbach, um, there's a Mambo, uh, there's uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, there's a Polka, there's a Tango. Uh, it, that corresponds very well with um, a novel which has 30 episodic characters in addition to the main characters and spans uh, three enormous continents, uh, well, two continents at three different times. So you have 30 chapters in Voltaire, the first 10 are spent in Europe, the next 10 are spent in the Americas, and the third, and the third part goes back to Europe and the, uh, and the Ottoman Empire. So you're going to get world travel in this fantastic, uh, almost absurd story in many regards, and that's a great, that's a great uh, vehicle for a composer who likes eclecticism. Um, so one of Bernstein's goals was to uh, marry popular music, the popular American spirit, with classical, uh, classical music. And um, he's looking at the perceived gap 
um, in value between so-called high art, opera high art, and musical comedy. And he's going to bring jazz and Hollywood, film music. He's going to, in other words, be sort of highbrow, middlebrow, and maybe even lowbrow. But he's fine with all of that, and he can combine it all that because he was equally at home everywhere. Now, if you want to, uh, one more reference, uh, if you can think of the great uh, series of Broadway, uh, Broadway musicals, just to name names, Showboat, 1927, Porky and Bess, 35, Oklahoma, 1943, Annie Get Your Gun, 1946, Street Scene, that's Court Vile, 47, Kiss Me Kate, 1948, Guys and Dolls, 1950, Most Happy Fellow, 1956, My Fair Lady, 1956, December 1956 is Candide. So Bernstein has all of this in his uh, purview as he's writing this work. Now, one of the things he does, interestingly enough, is to go to European classical sources for his material while he's going to write this great American music. So he's got a model for that. Kiss Me Kate is a retelling of the story of the taming of the shrew of Shakespeare. Um, uh, the the story of Romeo and Juliet is the story of West Side Story. Um, just before he wrote both of those theatrical works, he wrote a work for violin called The Serenade, which, though it has no text, really, is a replay or at least an illustration or a, uh, a meditation on uh, Plato's, uh, Plato's Symposium. So he's got that dramatic instinct to bring classical U European literature and to, and to put it to his American, American music. So he's, he's trying to elevate musical comedy and he's trying to efface the distance between, uh, between both, uh, both of those art forms. Uh, what are some of the things that played a big role in Voltaire's, um, uh, Voltaire's Candide? Was um, the earthquake uh, in Lisbon in 1755, which destroyed the city. Uh, Thousands died, uh, buried under this earthquake, the fires and all that. This made uh, this uh, posed a great philosophical uh, problem to European philosophy at the time, um, because it was predominantly in the believing that God is good and God will will always uh, will be always there to protect him. Being how could you justify an earthquake which destroyed? And so, for the optimism of a Leibniz. Um, uh, that's a big problem. And Voltaire is going to come out against that type of blind optimism and say, well, wait a minute, what about this? So P Portugal's going to be in this, in this story. Um, the story is written as what the Germans a little bit later called a Bildungsroman. That's a, a, a novel about the, uh, matu the maturing process of a young protagonist. Sometimes it's autobiographical. The young protagonist uh, starts out life uh, and has to learn about life and to mature into his adult or her adult being. Uh, that's, what, that's what Candide's going to do. Candide's going to start out wide-eyed and innocent, and he's going to see one terrible, terrible thing after another, and yet he's going to hold on to his belief in optimism, and he holds on like, like well into Act Two. I want to tell you. He's still holding on. He's holding on. He's holding on. But by the end of the opera, or the operetta, or the Broadway play, or whatever you want to call it, he's got the picture. Optimism isn't enough to explain 
or to guide us. We've got to have something more than that. So the story is absurd at times. I mean, people are killed and then come back to life. They disappear and then reappear across the continents. Our, our characters are going to find each other um, after being separated uh, uh, across half a world. Uh, so, but it's also one of those stories where, uh, very popular in America, you know, the perils of Pauline or Flash Gordon, you know, where the, where the great hero is doing all sorts of amazing things that just can't really happen, but we loved to watch it. So some of that's going to happen in uh, Candido. The hero is going to survive a series of really dire circumstances, uh, nearly fatal accidents, conflicts, um, all, in the all in the service of entertaining. So he's going to entertain you. So people like thrillers. That's a different type of thriller. That's going to keep you on the edge of your seat. Um, at the same time, you're going to laugh all night. And that's the genius of satire, that's the genius of Voltaire, and that's the genius of uh, Leonard Bernstein. Um, so uh, we're going to focus on the psychological and moral growth of, of Candide, our protagonist, from youth to adulthood. And we're going to see how he reacts to initial tragedy and how he's going to learn from everything. And what's he going to live through? I made a list here. Uh, earthquakes, fires, sea storms, plague, syphilis, war-forced conscription, multiple rape, dismemberment, public torture and execution, religious, racial, and nationalistic conflict and persecution, class-based exploitation, prostitution, forced and otherwise, forced sexual slavery, blackmail, extortion, thievery, swindles, blackmail, ignorance, poverty, and hunger. <laughs> That's what's on the plate tonight, all right? <laughs> Uh, but it's all with that safe literary distance of satire and the musical distance of, a, of the musical, which despite the fact that it may be describing some pretty terrible things, always has that basic premise of American Broadway class, uh, uh, popular America, that everything is really okay and everything's going to be okay in the can and you can be comfortable. You, you can be comfortable coming to a Broadway musical comedy because you know it's all going to be fine at the end. So um, it was an expression of the perceived, uh, uh, perceived stability and satisfaction that American society was feeling in the late 40s and 50s, um, content with itself for its uh, heroic uh, uh, war, uh, uh, role in the war, saving the free world, all that. And yet, there's something dark happening at the same time. And that dark thing is McCarthyism. I bring up McCarthyism not only because it's always important to remember it, and it's always, it, 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 the possibility of McCarthyism is always lurking, but not because I love to talk about McCarthyism, but because it was so central and important to Leonard Bernstein. And why was it important to Leonard Bernstein? Little do we know and talk about the fact that he was pursued by the FBI, by the House on Un-American Activities Committee, that the State Department refused to issue a passport, and he was unable to leave the country, and that uh, it, we, with all of that, he was on a list. He did not know it, but we know it now because it's been revealed. He was on a list of people to be rounded up in the case of, any, of a national uh, emergency. Uh, in, in, this is all in, in the context of the emerging Cold War. Uh, and he was afraid. And he didn't get jobs that he shouldn't got. That's pretty hard to believe because he be, he's become rightly a mythical icon 
of the man who was the greatest American success story amongst conductors, absolutely, and amongst composers. And it is very hard to realize that boards of directors turned him down, that in the back, in the, in the back ground to all of this, there was an awareness that he was politically suspect. So that's on his mind when he writes Candide. And so it's not an accident that the Grand Inquisition is included in this little operetta or whatever you call it. You're going to see um, a very funny comic but sharply satiric alto da fe. That is the, where the heretics were burned at the stake. Now if you want to see a really serious uh, alto da fe, you have to come back in, in September because we're going to do Don Carlo again. And there's a real alto da fe in there. But all of that, uh, all of that satire is not an accident. There was, there's, there's a big background to all of that. Now, um, as we look, uh, go, go at, look at the music, you're going to get the picture right away. First of all, the overture um, is, a, is a concert piece now. I, I would guess I've probably conducted it over 50 times. Um, I've um, presided over an orchestra that, and let them play it by themselves. Um, I've shared the podium with Kurt Mazur. We both conducted it at once, once upon a time in Germany. It's a, it's a, it's a hit overture. Uh, this is what it sounds like. Now, we call it uh, a potpourri overture, pot pourri uh, in English, potpourri in French, which is a mixed uh, soup of themes from the opera. Already standard practice, we've discussed it in the context of other operas, um, so this is no different. Just to remind you quickly what a potpourri, a famous Italian one sounds like, La Forza del Destino. You get, in quick succession, a motive, a theme from the opera. You get a second theme from the opera. This is what makes it popuri. All mixed in there. Here's a third one. And here's a fourth one. again. That is a motive, and we're going to call it the philosophical question. Okay? This is, a this is all about philosophy, this work. That's the philosophical question motive. Now, this is like a can-can here, sort of. This is battle music. There's a lot of armies, a lot of fighting going on. Okay? Here's another one. This is love. This is our beautiful young couple, Candide and his loved one, Cunegonde. More on them in a moment. For those of you like me who remember Dick Cavett, you'll recognize this.
This is Cunegonda again. Her big aria, which is called Glitter and Be Gay. Now listen to that again, and I want you to count with me. And some of you know where I'll be going with this. Once. Twice. And three times. What is that? That's the classic Rossini crescendo, where the same music is repeated three times in a row, uh, getting louder and louder and louder. Here's, a, here's another example. Here's a can-can. One. Inspired by Offenbach. Whoops. That again. This is a can-can, characterized by high kicks, legs in the air. Listen to this again in that context. And imagine it. Big kicks. And here's its grandfather, Rossini Overture, to Cinderella, La Cenerentola. There's two. This is one, sorry. There's two. This is your, this is your formula. And the Candide Overture is going to contain two examples of it. See if you can catch them um, as it goes by quickly at the beginning of the performance. And here's your third time. This is what you're going to be listening for. Repetition three times of that can. Here's another important source, Kurt Weil. Mahagoni, Alabama. That's his wife, Lotalania, And remember that he is as a, an immigrant composer who fled the Nazis and was a collaborator of Brecht and very far to the left wing. He was going to adjust to his new life, unfortunately a very short life, which was to end in 1950, to, in order to also raise the level of discourse on Broadway. So it wasn't going to be simple entertainment. It was going to be, sim it was going to be entertaining, but it was going to have a much more important message. Now, mixed in with all of this music is uh, that the other side of the coin to all of this is having just passed away the great Arnold Schoenberg, who'd lived here in Los Angeles at the Hollywood at the end of his life, the inventor, or at least the, yes, I wouldn't say the, the, the man who brought 12 tone music to the world and invented the tone row. That's when a melody has to play every tone once before you know, repeat it. Um, is, the, is Candide going to be all about 12 tone music? Just the opposite, but Bernstein, who admired it, wanted it to be a part of it. And so you will hear this, which is... And it will be played five times. It then gets repeated in retrograde, going backwards, and then all the intervals are in, are, are in, are go backwards, and then you go backwards a third, third time. And so 
What's he doing? He's including everything in his world at the moment as a part of the eclecticism of Candide. Um, there's some, uh, you, uh, you, there's some pr pretty, pr pretty subtle work there. Now, here's another thing. He's going to start the opera with a chorale. He would postulate, or had postulated, in his Harvard dissertation uh, upon graduation in Harvard, the, um, the roots of American music, that the very beginning to it all was the Protestant hymn from New England. And so how does he start Candide? With a Protestant hymn. Based loosely on Bach, the Matthew Passion. And now on to philosophy. Now, the best of all possible world, worlds. If I, uh, if I were to, I'm going to read this text to you. Uh, let us review. Lesson 11, paragraph 2, axiom 7. Once one dismisses the rest of all possible world, one finds that it is the best of all possible world. Prey classify pigeons and camels. Pigeons can fly. Camels are mammals. There is a reason for everything under the sun. Objection, what about snakes? Snakes, to a snake that tempted Mother Eve, because of snake we now believe, that though depraved we can be saved from hellfire and damnation. If snake had not seduced our lot and primed us for salvation, Jehovah could not pardon all the sins that we call cardinal involving bed and bottle. Now on to Aristotle. Mankind is one, all men are brothers. As you'd have done, do unto others. It's understood in this best of all possible worlds. All's for the good in this best of all possible worlds. Objection. What about war? War. The war may seem a bloody curse. It is a blessing in reverse. When cannon roar, both rich and poor, by danger are united, till every wrong is righted. Philosophers make evident the point that I have cited. Tis war makes equal, as it were, the noble and the commoner. Thus war improves relations. Now on, to, now on to conjugations. Amo, amas, amat, amamos. Proving that this is the best of all possible world, with love and kisses, the best of all possible worlds. Quod erat demonstrandum, QED, amos, amas, amat, amamos. And then we repeat, quote, uh, demonstrandum, which of course is the end of the proof, the Euclidean proof, that which has been demonstrated. Okay, it's lovely to read it, and it's even much more fun when you hear it to the music. Let us review lesson 11. Paragraph 2, axiom 7. Once one dismisses the rest of all possible worlds, one finds that this is the best of all possible worlds. Once one dismisses the rest of all possible worlds, one finds that this is the best of all possible worlds. Etc. Now, time to tell the story. Not really, but just to introduce the characters. Um, as mentioned, there are 30 episodic characters in Voltaire, but we have basically six main characters. Candide, who is the illegitimate son, uh, growing up in Westphalia, where I once lived in Cologne, um, in, a, in a castle in the midst of nowhere, but he believes it's the center of the universe because he's been told it's the best of all possible worlds. So uh, he's a lovely boy, he's innocent, he's sweet, he has a wonderful disposition. His only problem is he's illegitimate, so he can't inherit. Um, his mother was the sister of a baron, uh, and it was said that a nice gentleman in the neighborhood uh, was the father, but he was, not, uh, the, he was not married to the baroness. So that's Candide. 
Now, meanwhile, the Baron, who is a minor character, has two children. One of them, a son whose name is Maximilian, who is quite uh, full of himself, and his sister, Cunegonde. Cunegonde in French, Cunegonde. And she is in love with Candide and Candide with her. So before you go figuring it all out, yes, they are going to be, they are in love and they will become lovers. And it is a love story about their, their travails over life. But in fact, they are first cousins. You thought Wagner was the only one who ever did things like that. Yeah. Okay, so we've got those three young people, Candide, uh, Cousin, uh, Cunigand, and Maximilian, uh, the illegitimate children. Then there's Dr. Pangloss. Dr. Pangloss is the court philosopher. He's the big optimist. Um, and then there is a, uh, what she is referred to as a, um, a, a, a working wench, uh, not a term that we should be using these days. Uh, but she is also, of course, serving class. And she, has, um, she plays a, um, a role because she's really part of the family, too. Um, she, um, no, I won't tell you about her. Um, there is an old lady who will come into the scene much later in the, in the story that will become a very important philosophical force. She is, um, she is an itinerant. She has traveled the world. She is uh, the daughter, illegitimate again, of a pope. Her mother was from Rovna Govierna, which is, in fact, the hometown of Bernstein's father. Uh, so she is clearly, um, she's going to become a classic, classic um, uh, representation of the, uh, of the immigrant Jewish people who have moved from continent to continent, from land to land, and of course are an intrinsic part of Leonard Bernstein's uh, tr uh, tradition, and he will spend so much of his life celebrating that tradition. Um, put in more, um, in more prosaic terms, she's a great Jewish mother. And she will spout philosophy. Uh, when I see her, I feel I saw her, met her, knew her in New York City growing up. And if you think I made all of this up, uh, Bernstein writes manuscript. He gives a tempo marking to her big song, Moderato, which means to go at a moderate tempo. Moderato Hasidicamente. <laughs> now, you're going to read meet a lot of other people. There's a, the Baron, the parent. There's a Bavarian captain. There's James, an Anabaptist. That's a, that, was a, uh, that was a Protestant um, a sect that, uh, uh, that disapproved of baptizing um, babies. Um, they were persecuted. There's a Dutch minister and his wife. There is, yes, the Grand Inquisitor, who is to be met um, uh, on the Iberian Peninsula. There's a wealthy Portuguese uh, Jewish man. There's a governor of Montevideo, uh, because we get, to, we get to South America in the second part of this, uh, of this story. The king and queen of El Dorado. We're going to El Dorado. We're actually going to see it. Um, there's a Dutch slave trader uh, who's a crooked man. His name is Van der Deendur. Van der Deendur is actually a collection, it's a, uh, it's a ridiculous name, uh, because, da, uh, because Der, Deen, and Dur are th uh, the three cases of Dutch, just the way Die, Der, and Das are of German. Um, there's Ma Martin, who's a sort of amateur philosopher, um, and he is a pessimist, and he's going to be set up as a polar contrast to Dr. Pangloss. We're going to start in Westphalia. We're going to go to Bavaria, Holland, Paris, Vienna, Portugal, Lisbon, and Spain before intermission. 
After intermission, you're going to be in Montevideo, Paraguay, El Dorado, Suriname, and then we're going to go back to Venice um, the, uh, the, and the mountains, the Alps, where the story is all going to end. Now, um, the, 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 philosoph the philosophical question all along the way is, is it optimism? Is it pessimism? What's the best approach to life? Is there an approach to life? And we're not going to get a clear answer at the end. That's our philosophy lesson there. Here's Candide and Cunegonde. That's their love music. Here are three motives I want you to follow all night long. My world is Those three notes somehow or other are going to play a role. It's going to be associated with Candide and usually with love. Here's our philosophical question. We've heard this before. And here is our principal, our principal. Cunegonde. Candide's love for Cunegonde. Very romantic. You'll hear strains of West Side Story because the language is very similar. Uh, glory, glory, hallelujah. Maybe. Okay. And here's Mahler, a compliment. And this is Pangloss, and this is called, uh, by Bernstein, by the way, the first syphilis aria. There's a syphilis aria in Act Two as well. Okay, here's a big waltz in Paris. When we go to Paris, we get a waltz. Here we are. This is a waltz. I think Bernstein might have been conducting La Valse by Ravel that week. This is Ravel. And you hear a waltz, which is a combination of Ravel and Prokofiev. The famous aria, which we were playing for you before I came in. And Glitter, here I am. Glitter and be gay. That's Cunegonde, who, of course, by now has made her compromises with life and is, of course, uh, lives as all the women in this opera must do. They have no choice. They must choose or are chosen for prostitution. There's no other way for them to get through life. That is part of the stark social criticism of Voltaire, and it is also part of the stark social criticism of Bernstein. But she adjusts in a wonderful way. She sings this fabulous aria, which is the real bravura virtuosic showpiece of the entire opera. This part you know, you've heard it in the overture and on Dick Cabot. And here's our little can-can. Here's our Alta da Fe. And the text is what a day, what a day for an auto da fe. What a day, what a day for an auto da fe. What the sun And that is taken from none other than Verdi's Il Trovatore. Gypsy music, why? Because the story is about Azucena, whose mother was burned at the stake as a witch. So it's very subtle humor, but it's there. This is the Auto da Fe from Don Carlo. It's a serious one. Wait for September and you will hear it. 
Here is the old lady's story. She's not going to sing Hasidic music. She's going to sing Spanish because she is assimilation incarnate. She is the assimilated. That's the piece that's called Moderato Hasidicamente. You're going to have some great, here's a nice habanera like Carmen. I'm going to skip right to the end. Here's the final piece, one of very moving, is like Mahler. That's not it. It will end like the Mahler Eighth Symphony or the Mahler Second Symphony. And what's it all about? Let our garden grow. That is the Voltairean message. Uh, is life good? Is it bad? Is it to be, are you to be optimistic? Are you to be pessimistic? And we have already heard and quietly intoned him, life is life. And what is, your, what is the only thing you can do? Let your garden grow, be productive, do something, live your life with all of its good and bad, live your life. And is that because, is he, is Voltaire um, advocating withdrawal from life? Is he advocating, a, 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 is he advocating something that's pessimistic? Um, and the answer is no, 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 no. Yes, 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 yes. We do not know what Voltaire is advocating, but we have a sense that Bernstein is advocating uh, every human being living their life to the fullest, but in the end, contributing to the world in whatever way they can. And that's the message I get out of Let Our Garden Grow. So let your garden grow, enjoy yourselves, and uh, we'll see you anon. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.